learning. We've all experienced it, but how does it happen? More importantly, how do we create powerful learning experiences that change people's lives? In this podcast, we'll explore the world of adult career change education, from learning theories to classroom experiences to the kinds of people who make life-changing education possible. So come learn with us. This is the future of professional education, powered by Thrive DX. Hi, folks, and welcome back to the future of professional education. I'm your host, Sean Dagoni-Clark, and I have another special guest today. So I met Taurus Mullins at Flatiron School, where we both worked, and he headed our second Manhattan campus. He moved on from there to work in talent and recruitment, as well as in culture, diversity, and inclusion. And that made him a great person to do a bunch of professional developments for Thrive DX on things like inclusivity and bias and, and plenty of other topics that he's talked with us about. Um, and everybody has really appreciated the, the work that he's done here. So Taurus, thank you for that. And so today, we're going to be channeling some of that into a conversation about a few things. We're going to talk about optimal conditions for classroom or hybrid learning. We're going to talk about introspection in teachers and their mental models about learning. We're going to talk about data-driven education. We're going to talk about how educators can foster equity and then some uh, things on leadership as well. So Taris, welcome. Thank you for having me, Sean. It's fantastic to be with you and the Thrive DX community today. Yeah, it's great to see you. So let's jump right in. Yeah. One of the things that you're passionate about, I know, is inclusivity. And yeah. so how, when you think about creating the right conditions for a classroom learning environment, right, with air quotes, of course, mm -hmm. yeah. what are those conditions that, that you would think about? Yeah. So, you know, I think first and foremost, it's taking a step back, right, and asking ourselves, what is the outcome that we want for our learners and our students? And then how do we design the right conditions to support reaching that outcome? I'll often talk to community members and leaders and remind them that systems are designed to generate a particular outcome. And so we have to think about what the system's thinking is in terms of our classroom environment. And so particularly, when we're looking at navigating in a remote learning or a hybridized model, really being mindful of the fact that no longer do we have this neat separation between home life and learning life for the communities that we're serving. We have to understand that there is more integration that folks are grappling with, particularly if you're serving an adult learning population where they might have other competing priorities at home that they have to contend with that can disrupt or distract them from their learning journey. Mm -hmm. And so first, as an educator, and that's my background, is in higher education, K through 12, is thinking about, okay, how am I showing up? In this environment and how am I creating opportunities to get to know the learners and the students that I'm supporting and cultivate that psychological safety for them to feel like this is going to be an effective holding environment to support their learning engagement and mm -hmm. what that looks like. I think the second piece is really recognizing that hybrid and remote learning does not always attend to every single person's mindset and it's not always effective for everyone and so just deploying the exact same tactics that we would have used in january february of 2020 before we were doing this fully remotely across many organizations might not always be appropriately calibrated 
And so asking ourselves, okay, what do I need to do differently as an educator to create a more dynamic learning environment in a virtual space and to attend to different learning styles? One of the key pieces that any effective educator knows is differentiation and recognizing that you can't use a one-size-fits-all approach. And so being really mindful of how you lean into that and getting to know your students and creating a responsive learning environment. Mm -hmm. One of the pieces of feedback that I've gotten from colleagues in the education space and just from my own experience is that there are so many standards and rigorous areas that we have to hit in terms of student learning and attainment and just hitting the curricular outcomes we want to reach. And so at times that forces us into this mindset, oh, I've just to deploy, hope they learn, share an assessment, and then move forward. And there's not that opportunity for that reflective space mm-hmm. where the learner is able to understand what they took away from that instruction. And then you as an as education leader are able to reflect on what was most effective about my practice and instruction that worked for this learning group and what potential adjustments might I need to make going forward to be even more effective for them. Um, The last piece that, that I'll share around that that I think is critically important is really being mindful of how we as educators are showing up in those environments and that we truly have to think about our mindset And what is the model that we have about which students and which learners are going to be successful in that environment? And to what degree we're reinforcing that narrative in our practices and our behaviors as an educator and a leader. And really thinking to ourselves, okay, if I want to create a most effective environment for folks to learn, then I have to truly be mindful of the fact that I want all people to learn. You know, I I reflect on... um, the Pixar movie Ratatouille, one of my favorite movies to watch. And the the line from Gusteau, everyone can cook. And I believe that truly in education, everybody can be a learner. Everybody should be learning. But it's incumbent on us as educators to think about how do I make the right conditions to support that person learning in this environment. Um, and that that one size fits all model really might not be most effective. Now, all that to say... We're also mindful of the fact that the last 21 months of, of life have been exhaustive for everybody, particularly the strain that is placed on our educators across the country and around the world. We, if nothing else, this, this pandemic has taught us how reliant we are on our school systems and our school leaders to truly be the backbone of our national infrastructure. Um, and I think we've done a huge disservice of recognizing that, but I think too, we also have to recognize the humanity within that too. And so these these additional asks that we are putting forward for our educations and leaders does not come without additional work and and cost potentially in terms of time and energy and investment. Um, And so that's also something that I think too is important to recognize and honor um, as well. So I'll just share that. That's that's great. A lot of good thoughts in there. yeah, the, the thing you said about the responsive learning environment, I mean, that, that feels like such an important element. And for people who have studied education, I mean, I imagine you're thinking of like UDL, um, among other things, but creating a, an environment that really meets the needs uh, and preferences of all the learners, as opposed to just, I'm going to teach the way that I think you need to know this mm-hmm. or something. Yep. Um, that, that really has been shown to make the most effective learning, as you said, for all learners. It, it's, yep. it's not any one group. It's everyone learns better if we can do this in a, you know, in a variety of modalities and a, a variety of ways to, to learn something. Yep. Yep. Well, and I think to your point, Sean, that 
that that really illustrates the distinction between equality in education and equity in education because equality means that we're giving every learner in their education experience and journey the exact same dosage or inoculation if you will in terms of that process right and that is not attuned to what might be unique about an english english language learner versus somebody who coming from comes from a low income background versus somebody who has a very supportive educational environment and so providing for that differentiation is really grounded in an equitable approach mm-hmm. and really being mindful that we have to attend to what are the unique needs of each person or each population and tailor our strategies and then implement them consistently to meet them where they're at so that they can be successful and then move towards those key metrics and outcomes that we want to see our students and our learners attain. And I think that that distinction is really important to be mindful of. Um, and especially when we are moving so rapidly and deploying content and instruction um, in the fashions that we are, it's easy to, to shift back into this mindset of, well, let me just use the middle of the bell curve and that That'll be enough. And in many ways, that's not necessarily going to be effective. And the people who get left out are generally those who are underrepresented and historically underserved in in certain educational spaces. And so I think that's a huge call out that I really appreciate you bringing up. Yeah, well, and and equality versus equity is such a great distinction to make. A lot of, well, I don't want to say this, a lot of people don't know it, but I I think a lot of people (laughs) may not know what the the distinction really is. And I think it's very helpful to, to hear you describe it that way. Um, it's not about giving everyone the exact same opportunities. It's about Mm -hmm. giving people the right opportunities to get everyone to the same place. Um, and it's that, that sort of mind shift is, is really Mm -hmm. key in building, um, inclusive education. No, it is. You know, I, I was reading, I love to read data and studies, and so I was reading a recent study that came out by the National Center for Education Statistics, and they were doing a, a background analysis of um, different populations in the education sector. Now, this was grounded in K-12, through but we can extrapolate that to post-secondary and to long-term outcomes. And what they found, and likely this is not surprising for you or for the listeners, but there are disproportionate outcomes for Black and Latin ex-men um, identified male identified persons compared to their female or white counterparts and again that was a limited sample size looking just between those those racial and ethnic groups but it does it's illustrative of a much deeper issue and challenge and so if we're only attending to the the best learners quote unquote or if we're only attending to what the majority might need we're leaving people out and, and that's, uh, that's a problem. I was watching a TED Talk yesterday, actually, that was talking about happiness in the workplace. But one of the pieces that, it, that the researcher shared was that often when we're looking at, especially in the education sector, we don't look to see what's most effective for all students. We look at what's most effective for the average student. And what is the average student in certain environments? And how do we calibrate that? And we tend to skew what the average looks like to students who aren't necessarily underrepresented and that Mm -hmm. inherently bakes in challenges to that systemic approach of how our education system is designed Um, and so i think that that's also important to be mindful of and recognize too yeah and that that mindfulness is really the first part of this you can't fix that system if you you're not thinking about it if you're not aware of it um let's let's talk about that so um one of the things that that I know that you care deeply about is fostering introspection. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I know you've tried to do this with the professional developments that we've had at, at yeah. Thrive DX and, and also yeah. just in your own work. How do you foster, how, how do you think about fostering introspection in educators and sort of challenging their mental models about learning? Mm, that's a great question. You know, I think first, it's a couple things. I think first that it is looking at yourself and your own educational journey. You know, I remember one of the most poignant experiences for me during my eighth grade year was my math teacher. She had a terrible mental model about me as a student. She just did not believe that I could learn algebra whatsoever. And she was low-key unabashed (laughs) about communicating that to me. And that had a very real impact on my own personal belief about my ability to succeed in that class. And so often she wouldn't call on me when there were times to engage the classroom in discussion. Or if I did something wrong, it was generally, well, that's just the way that Taurus is. And you can underlie that with potential um, stereotypes of black men learning in different environments. But I remember a seminal moment for me was when we had our standardized tests that we had to complete for that academic year growing up. And I passed, but didn't just pass, but I passed in the advanced category. And the privilege <laughs> that was mind, afford- right? I bl- and I blew her mind. <laughs> and the privilege that was afforded to you is if you passed advanced, you got to go write your name on the chalkboard. And I remember when she said my name, there was not this There was almost surprise in her mind that I had managed to not just pass the exam that she didn't expect me to, but I had actually achieved something beyond just proficiency. Um, And that sticks with me because it really goes back to this idea of individualized mindsets as educators and how we have to disrupt those mental models and it can't just be this is the singular story of this population or this student like, yes, there might be a data point that could reinforce that, but there are likely countless data points that countermand that Mm -hmm. to some degree. So I think that's part number one is starting with that introspection. I think number two, and we've hosted a number of dialogues around this with the Thrive DX team, is creating community community learning um, practices. Um, In the K through 12 space, they often have these where they will bring educators together to learn in concert with one another around particular topics. And the power in that is that you're not just in a personalized echo chamber, but you're actually with colleagues who can push and pull against your thinking, give you different strategies of how you can deploy learning and problem solve in that learning community to some degree that helps you to be a more robust and effective educator. And so I think that to go back to your original question around how do we disrupt those mental models, being in community with one another and asking those critical questions of what data points am I taking in? To what degree is that an accurate representation of this learner or that community? And implicating ourselves and asking yourself as a leader and an educator, what do I need to do differently if this is the outcome that I'm seeking to reach for that student or that community learner? And I think that's critically important. The last piece that I'll I'll offer um, is that leadership matters. And I think that one of the huge opportunities, regardless of the education space that somebody might sit in, is who are the individuals who are galvanizing the educators and leading them? 
you know, I one of the a new TV show that just came out is about is called Abbott Elementary, and it's focused on a inner city public school that has some challenges with their population and with their budgeting and all those different pieces. But it also calls out the importance of in that moment the the comical principle. But when I look at both the K through twelve system, the post secondary sector, looking at um dis- at non traditional learning environments the leadership in those spaces matters because they set the tone and they set the expectation. And if you take that one step deeper, it also creates the critical environment where you have the opportunity to say what has worked most effectively for our learners and our practices here and how do we collectively shift our approach and hold that with fidelity going forward, right? It's not good enough for one or two instructors to make the appropriate adjustments. It has to be collectively we are all making these shifts in our practice because it serves our learners and our community um one of the researchers that i used to work with when i was at at nyu used to say that your zip code is the biggest indicator of your life outcomes it impacts your access to quality education in the K-12 system. It impacts your access to effective health care, to food, to all, all sorts of things. And so we have to keep that in mind when we're thinking about the broader ecosystem that our learners are operating within. And when you're bringing together people from disparate backgrounds like you do at Thrive DX, it's important to recognize that the learning journey for every single one of them was likely not congruent. And so when they're coming into this environment and they're learning together, we have to think about what are the conditions we're going to create here to allow for an equitable learning space that's going to really support our learners at the end of the day. And that starts first with the individual and then goes back to the community of practice and then really is foundationally informed by the leaders who, who shape that imperative. I think anybody listening can see why we like having Taris run our professional developments. Um, (laughs) (laughs) One one thing that we've talked about in the past is that snowball effect that starts in early childhood education when it's Mm -hmm. not equitable um, Mm -hmm. and not inclusive and just builds. And it it sort of gets at what you were just talking about with the, uh, the zip code effect. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's sort of a similar thing that if if certain students are not afforded the the same um, you know the same opportunities or, or at least uh, equitable opportunities, um, they're they're going that the effect is just going to get worse as they progress because education builds on itself so much. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, is something that you've seen or that you've been aware of and and just like expand on that 100 percent. so if you're familiar with the k-12 space and especially if you're an educator in the post-secondary higher education non-traditional learner space tracking is is critically important for students in terms of their outcome my mom is was a first grade teacher she recently retired and she served in that capacity for over 30 years Mm. and she used to tell stories about colleagues who at times would identify quote-unquote problem students who would be too challenging to engage in the classroom or they were too disruptive to learn effectively and so that other teachers weren't able to manage them. My mom would always welcome those students into her classroom because she believed that every student can learn. They just might need to learn a little bit differently, right? And the importance and the reason that I shared that is because when we relegate students to folks who don't believe that they can learn, effectively, 
that impacts what opportunities and tracks are put on. So generally, at least in the United States, access to higher order math and science are two of the biggest indicators of where somebody is going to go in terms of their educational trajectory. Mm -hmm. And so if a student is identified at the K through six, K through eight level, that they're not an effective learner, they're likely put on a different track that doesn't allow them access to advanced placement courses, international baccalaureate courses, or just advanced opportunities that will allow them to be more college ready or post-secondary ready. Mm -hmm. And that is where the snowball effect starts to happen. And so you start to see a very clear chasm emerge between certain students who have access to educational opportunities and those who do not. Thankfully, I'll speak from my own experience, my parents are both educators, are embedded in the education system. And so they were very clear from a very young age that for me, me and my brother, we were going to be placed in advanced classes and have those opportunities. That's because they advocated for us, not because by nature the system was set up to generate that outcome for us in the space that we grew up in. And so when I think about the snowball effect, I reflect on um, this really unique analogy that comes from the Racial Equity Institute, and it talks about the groundwater effect. And so what they illustrate through this example is, say you are visiting the Chicago area, and you know Chicago is right on the, on the edge of Lake Michigan, and you happen to be walking along the beach and you see a dead fish. In your mind, you might say to yourself, okay, it's a dead fish, maybe there was something wrong with that fish, maybe there was something wrong with something it ate, I'm not really going to think it's a big deal. The next week, you happen to come back and you're walking along the beach, and instead of one dead fish, you happen to see 25 dead fish. And so now you're thinking to yourself, okay, last week it was probably just that one fish. This week, now I'm wondering, is there something up with the water in this lake? Mm -hmm. hmm, interesting. A few weeks later, you're watching the news, and you find out that researchers have found that this isn't an isolated incident to just Lake Michigan. But they're seeing clusters of dead fish popping up at all five lakes within the Great Lake system. And so what the Racial Equity Institute tells us is that that actually isn't about the fish. It isn't about the lake. It's about the groundwater. It's the groundwater that is feeding into the lake and then the fish are living in that. And they become, in some ways, the canary in the coal mine that's indicative of a much deeply held issue. And so I draw that parallel back to the education system because when we look at data points, because we all want to be data-driven to inform our practice, when we look at data points, and if we just take that at the surface as this is the one story that is indicative of populations that are going to be successful and those that aren't successful, and we can easily cast responsibility onto the shoulders of those learners, we're doing a huge disservice and we're misrepresenting what the true systemic groundwater issues are that we have to be disrupting in the course of how we're approaching education across the board. And so for me, like, I really love that, that parallel because it does take a moment to question. If I just focus on the fish and make it about that singular entity and don't recognize that there's a lot more deeper in the system's thinking that's not being addressed, we're not hitting the mark and we're not going to be able to actually transform education in the way that we want to that's going to create more equity and disrupt the historical and systemic barriers that disproportionately impact certain populations in our country and around the world. Since this is a longer conversation, I'm going to stop right there and break this episode into two parts. So we'll be back with the next episode of The Future of Professional Education, where Taris and I will finish our conversation about creating inclusive learning. 
Until then, thanks for listening and thanks for learning with us. Did you enjoy this podcast? Please consider leaving a rating or review wherever you found it. And I hope you'll also recommend it to your friends. Thank you.